our sermon time with a question this morning. By show of hands, how many of you enjoy a party? How many of you enjoy a party? All right, very good. I'm like most of you. I love a party. I love all kinds of parties. I like having a few friends over for a meal. I get to cook and eat and laugh together. It's fantastic. I love it. I love birthday parties. Yesterday, Adeline celebrated her first birthday, and uh, it was a blast. We had a lot of fun. A few family members came into town for that. I love all kinds of parties. I love going to weddings. I especially love officiating weddings uh, because I don't know if you knew this or not, but when I officiate a wedding, I have the line that gets the party started. Right? Did you guys, you ever think about that before? Because up until I have this one specific line, everybody's sitting there very quietly and very respectfully until I say, I now pronounce you man and wife, you may kiss the bride. Then what happens? Everybody goes nuts. You don't have to clap right, but that's very kind of you. Right? I have the line that gets the party started. I love that. I love big parties, little parties, short parties, long parties, barbecues, bar mitzvahs, back-to-school parties, tea parties, costume parties, quinceañeras, pizza parties, anniversary parties, euchre parties, cookie parties, Fourth of July parties. Man, I'll even go to a Tupperware party. I love <laughs> parties. love celebrating my wife's birthday because I rejoice that God made her exactly the way he did. I love celebrating the birth of Jesus that the light of the world was born. I love that this past week we got to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, and I love it when we get to celebrate with people who experience their own resurrection and rise to walk in newness of life. That's why one of the things we are so passionate about here is when somebody gets baptized, we do what? We give them a standing ovation because we love parties. We love parties because our God loves parties. Now let me ask you a follow-up question. You all seem pretty unified in this idea that we love a party. How many of you love planning for a party? Same show of hands. There's one or two in every crowd. I love a party. I do not, I repeat, I do not love planning for a party, preparing for a party. It is exhausting to me. Parties at my house, how many times do I need to vacuum the floor before it's acceptable, right? Right? It's going to be messy in three minutes anyway. Are you sure we have to dust the inside of the medicine cabinet? Nobody's going to look there, right? Better not look at the inside of the medicine cabinet. How many times am I going to go to the grocery store to get that one thing that I forgot? I have to mow the lawn, but it's going to rain for 11 days prior to the party, so I'm going to end up mowing the lawn at 4 a.m. day of. And that's nothing. I don't know if you know this, but if you've ever prepared for a child's first birthday party, it is not easy. It is not easy. But then there's the silverback gorilla of the party world. How many of you have ever planned a wedding? Yeah, a couple wedding plans. Congratulations, you made it. How many of you have planned two weddings in the same summer? How many of you have ever planned two weddings in the same summer a couple weeks before your husband had open heart surgery? Whoa. <laughs> Congratulations, you all survived it. If you've planned a wedding, that is the silverback gorilla of the party world. And you begin to think, as you go through this party preparation, is it even going to be worth it? I am exhausted. I'm so sick of the idea of this party. Is it even going to be worth it? 
I love a party, but I hate preparing for a party. And I think the Hebrew people can relate to that. I think the Israelites that were in Egypt could relate to that because in Exodus chapter 12, God commanded them to have a party. And it seems like an odd time to have a party. It doesn't seem like there's a whole bunch to celebrate, but God says have a party, so you have a party. And they're slaves. It doesn't really feel like a good time to have a party. Their Egyptian taskmasters are brutal, and they work them to the bone. They don't really have the energy to have a party. On top of that, there's some really weird stuff going on in Egypt right now. God's doing some things that are just kind of odd. God turned the water in the Nile into blood. He sent frogs, flies, lice, made the cattle sick, boils, hail, locusts. And then there's this whole darkness thing going on. It just doesn't seem like an obvious time to have a party. And yet, here's what God says in Exodus chapter 12. While the Israelites were still in the land of Egypt, the Lord gave the following instruction to Moses and Aaron. From now on, this month will be the first month of the year for you. Announce to the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each family must choose a lamb or a young goat for a sacrifice. One animal for each household. If a family is too small to eat a whole animal, let them share with another family in the neighborhood. Divide the animal according to the size of each family and how much they can eat. The animal you must select must be a one-year-old male, either a sheep or a goat, with no defects. Take special care of this chosen animal until the evening of the 14th day of this first month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel must slaughter their lamb or young goat at twilight. They are to take some of the blood and smear it on the sides and the top of the door frames of the houses where they eat the animal. That same night they must roast the meat over a fire and eat it along with bitter salad greens and bread made without yeast. Do not eat any of the meat raw or boiled in water. The whole animal, including the head, legs, and internal organs, must be roasted over a fire. Do not leave any of it until the next morning. Burn whatever is not eaten before morning. These are your instructions for eating this meal. Be fully dressed, wear your sandals, and carry your walking stick in your hand. Eat the meal with urgency, for this is the Lord's Passover. On that night, I will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and every firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. But the blood on your doorstep on your doorpost will serve as a sign marking the houses where you are staying. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. This plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is a day to remember each year from generation to generation. You must celebrate it as a special festival to the Lord. This is a law for all time. All right, so let's, let's start by just translating this a little bit. God has commanded them to have a giant barbecue. A three million person barbecue. Don't boil the meat. Don't eat it raw. You will cook the meat over an open fire. This is a barbecue. One of my favorite kinds of parties. Uh, That's a lot though. So let's boil it down to one really simple concept and we'll build out from there. The Israelites were celebrating Jesus. The Israelites were celebrating Jesus. They just didn't know it. We celebrate Jesus. We know it. So Christianity, more than any other thing, organization, group, or people on the planet, should be synonymous with the word joy. 
We should be synonymous with the word joy. Here's what, here's what I mean by that. Let me explain it a little bit. I don't know if you know this or not, but I like baseball. I specifically like the Chicago Cubs. You may or may not know that about me. In 2016, the Cubs won the World Series. First time in my lifetime. First time in over 100 years the Cubs had won the World Series. I was pretty happy about that. I celebrated. I'm not going to lie. I may even shed a few tears, right, after the 32nd inning of Game 7. And, and, it, was, uh, and it, was a, it was a really cool experience. I called my dad. We talked. We laughed. We shared about it. It was a neat experience, and I was pretty happy about it. But you know what happened next year? You know who won the World Series next year? I mean, just don't, no, 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 I don't want to, we don't. Let me just tell you all you need to know about who won the World Series the next year. The Not Cubs. So congratulations to the Not Cubs on winning the World Series. My celebration was over. In this room, there are different political ideologies. Some of you are Republicans, some of you are Democrats, none of you raise your hand. Huh? Some of you like the current administration, some of you don't. Some of you are celebrating, some of you aren't. Wherever you land, I'm going to tell you to look at the past. No political party reigns indefinitely, so your preferred political party will suffer defeat at some point, and your excitement will turn to disappointment, or your disappointment will turn to excitement, which will then in turn turn to disappointment at some point in the future. Church, more than anybody else on the planet... We have a reason to be joyful and a reason to stay joyful. And that reason's name is Jesus. We can be joyful because nothing will ever conquer him. Satan took his best shot at Jesus. He had him killed. And it didn't work. It didn't work. That's where our joy comes from. That's where our joy comes from. The Israelites were celebrating Jesus. They just didn't know it. We celebrate Jesus and we know it. So that's why we celebrate Jesus because nothing will ever overcome my Jesus. That's why we celebrate Jesus. Now let me show you why the Israelites were celebrating Jesus. They didn't realize at the time, but that's what was happening. I want to start with bitter herbs or bitter salad greens. Verse 8 says this, The same night they must roast the meat over a fire and eat it along with bitter salad greens and bread made without yeast. New Living Translation says bitter salad greens. I've always heard bitter herbs. And if there's a, a way possible to make it sound less appealing than bitter herbs, it's bitter salad greens. You know? That's probably effective translation work right there. If I'm going to eat a salad, it better have a hard-boiled egg and cheese and turkey and bacon and ranch dressing, right? This is bitter salad greens. God would probably say have it with a fat-free raspberry vinaigrette. Right? It's just not very appealing sounding. But it's for a reason. It's for a reason. See, you don't enjoy bitter herbs. You endure them. You don't enjoy bitter herbs. You endure them. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, even though he despised its shame and he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God in Egypt. Bitter herbs were a reminder that the children of Israel lived because the Passover lamb died. You're not supposed to enjoy them. You're not supposed to enjoy the bitter herbs. You're supposed to endure them. It's supposed to be a reminder that this was not free. This was not easy. This was not cheap. 
This wasn't something to be enjoyed. It was a reminder of the death that it took to ensure their lives. They were celebrating Jesus. They just didn't know it yet. Back to verse 8. That same night, they must roast meat over a fire and eat it along with bitter salad greens and bread made without yeast. Eat your meal with bread that has no yeast. All of God's bakers in the room know that yeast is a leavening agent. We know that, that yeast takes time to rise. You introduced yeast into your bread dough and it takes time for that bread to rise and the Israelites didn't have time. They didn't have time to wait for that to happen so there was no yeast and certainly that's part of the conversation but there's more to it. It goes deeper than that. In the Bible, yeast is almost always used as a symbol of sin. It's almost always used as a symbol of sin. So when leaven is introduced, it affects all of the dough. It affects all of the dough. What was that thing that Jesus said that one time? Oh, he said a little leaven leavens the whole lump. That's what he said. That's exactly what he meant. When, when leaven is introduced to the dough, there is no part of the dough that is left unaffected by the work of the leavening agents. I think it's fascinating. The Hebrew word for leaven is komets. It means to make bitter or sour seems to be an apt description of the work that sin does in our lives. Or maybe this, maybe this, it makes us bitter or sour, or, or leaven causes dough to get puffed up so that the end result is greater in volume but no greater in substance. Go on, Bible, that'll preach. The people were to eat bread that had not been negatively affected by leaven. That's exactly what Jesus was. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, yet he was what? Without sin. He was without sin. He had not been negatively affected by leaven. That's why I don't think it's an accident that Jesus describes himself this way. He says, I am the bread of life. Here's where things get interesting. The Hebrew people used the sourdough method to bake bread. And so when they made bread, they would cut off a piece of the leavened dough and they would set it aside so that when they made bread later, they could use the leavening from in that to leaven the new batch of dough. Here's my question for you. When leaven is introduced to dough, how do you get rid of it? When leaven is introduced to dough, how do you get rid of the leaven that's in the dough? You get new bread. You get new bread. That's how you get rid of it because leaven is so pervasive and invades all of it. The only way to do it is to get new bread. It's impossible to separate. When we sin, it becomes such a part of us that it's impossible to separate us. That's why God commands us to die to ourselves so that we can rise to a new life. The only way to get rid of leaven is to get new bread. The only way to get rid of sin is to get new life. So that instead of being influenced by the leaven of sin, we ingest the bread of life and are instead transformed into his image and into his likeness. These people were celebrating Jesus. They just didn't know it yet. So that same night, they must roast the meat over a fire and eat it along with bitter salad greens and bread made without yeast. Let's talk meat. Where's the meat come from? Verse 3 
announced to the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each family must choose a lamb or a young goat for a sacrifice. One animal for each household. If a family is too small to eat a whole animal, let them share with another family in the neighborhood. Divide the animal according to the size of each family and how much they can eat. The animal you select must be a one-year-old male, either a sheep or a goat, no defects. Take special care of the chosen animal until the evening of the 14th day of this first month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel must slaughter their lamb or young goat at twilight. They are to take some of the blood, smear it on the sides and the top of the doorframe of the house where they eat the animal. That's a lot to cover. Uh, let's start by talking about the animal. What kind of what animal are we talking about here? Perfect. No blemish, no defect. That's an important animal. You see, this animal's about more than being nice. This is the kind of animal that you would want to breed so that the rest of your flock could look like that, right? If you're going to breed an animal, you don't want to breed it with one that has a blemish or a defect, right? You want, it to, you want to breed one that has no blemish or no defect so the rest of the flock can be as pure and good-looking as that. This is the animal that you are to kill. This animal is the key to a healthy flock. This animal is the key to a healthy flock. Does that sound like Jesus to anybody or is it just me? What was it that John the Baptist said that first time he saw Jesus after they'd grown up? He said, behold, the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sins of the world. This Lamb is more than a perfect Lamb. He's the key to a healthy flock. Not the kind of animal you'd want to kill. It's the one that you'd want to breed. Sacrifice is significant. This lamb is to be killed, and when the lamb has been slaughtered, the blood of the lamb is to be spread around the doorpost to the home with a hyssop branch. You know, when Jesus died, there was blood all around. He had a crown of thorns that went down on his head, and there's a lot of capillaries in your head, probably bled profusely. He had nails in his hands, nails in his feet. There's a lot of blood, a lot of blood all around. So I don't think it's an accident that Jesus says in John 10, I am the door. I don't think it's an accident at all. So I say to you, when we think about Jesus hanging on the cross, or, or when we read passages from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that describe Jesus on the cross, I think an appropriate thing to do is stop and look and say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. These people, they were celebrating Jesus. They just didn't know it yet. Today we celebrate Jesus and we know it. Today we celebrate Jesus and we know it. For many years the church has made a connection between reverence and solemnity. We've said our silence is a show of respect and it is at a funeral. In the Bible, good news always elicited a joyful response. When you think about King David ushering in the Ark of the Covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 6, he was dancing through the streets and Michael looked out of her window and she said, how undignified for a king to be acting this way. And David says, you don't know the half of it. I'll be even more undignified than this because I am celebrating the God of heaven who is my God. Some of you are going, well, wait a minute, Tony. Remember the bitter herbs. You're not supposed to enjoy the bitter herbs. You're supposed to endure the bitter herbs. You remember the lamb that was slain? We absolutely 
are supposed to remember that. The lamb in Exodus is dead, but I encourage you to check the tomb. My God's alive. Yes, he died. And for that I am humbly and unimaginably grateful. But he rose. And for that reason, I am unconditionally grateful. So God commanded the people to have this feast we call Passover. After the meal, the people fled from Egypt, being chased by Pharaoh's army. They found themselves between a rock and a hard place, or maybe a sea and an army. The Red Sea in front of them, the Egyptian army behind them, and they look to Moses and they say, why did you bring us out here to die? Wouldn't it have been better for us to die, for, to, to live in Egypt than to die in the wilderness? And God shows up. And he parts the Red Sea and the, and the Hebrew people walk across on dry land. And when the Egyptians try that same thing, their chariot wheels become stuck in the mud and God causes the water to crash in around them and God shows up for his people. And as the Israelites reach the other side and they look back at all that God has done, they burst into song. Listen to this. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. He has hurled both horse and rider into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has given me victory. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and army he's hurled into the sea. The finest of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters gushed over them and they sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, is glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, smashes the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow those who rise against you. They were party people. They were party people. Church, this joyful song teaches us an important lesson. Our joy doesn't come from what we have. Our joy comes from who we belong to. Let me say that one more time. Our joy doesn't come from what we have. Our joy comes from who we belong to. I want to illustrate that point by closing this way. This is a story of a few party people. And the first one comes from John Ortberg in his book, The Life You've Always Wanted. Here's what he says. He says, the state-run convalescent hospital is not a pleasant place. It's large, understaffed, and overfilled with senile, helpless, and lonely people who are waiting to die. On the brightest of days, it seems dark inside, and it smells of sickness and stale urine. I went there once or twice a week for four years, but never wanted to go there, and I always left with a sense of relief. It's not the kind of place one gets used to. On this particular day, I was walking the hallway, and it was in a wing that I'd not visited before. I was looking in vain for a few people who were alive enough to receive a flower and an encouraging word. This hallway seemed to contain some of the worst cases, and they were strapped onto carts or into wheelchairs, and they looked very helpless. As I neared the end of the hallway, I saw an older woman strapped in a wheelchair, and her face was a horror. I could tell by her eyes that she was blind. I could tell by the large hearing aid over one ear that she was almost completely deaf. One side of her face was being eaten by cancer, and there was a discolored and running sore covering part of one of her cheek. It pushed her nose to one side, dropped one eye, and distorted her jaw so that what it should have been the corner of her mouth was the side, the bottom. I learned later that 
this woman was 89 years old and that she'd been there bedridden, blind, and nearly deaf and alone for 25 years. This was Mabel. I put a flower in her hand and I said, here, this is a flower for you. Happy Mother's Day. She held the flower up to her face and tried to smell it. Then she spoke. She said, thank you. It's lovely. But can I give it to somebody else? I can't see, you know. I said, of course. And then I pushed her down the hallway in her chair looking for someone who might be able to receive such a gift. When we found one, I stopped her and I said, okay, Mabel. She held out the flower and said, here, this is from Jesus. That's when it began to dawn on me that this was no ordinary human being. Later, later I wheeled her back to her room and learned more about her history. She'd grown up on a small farm that she managed with her mother until her mother had passed. Then she ran the farm alone until 1950 when her blindness and sickness led her to the convalescent hospital. For 25 years, she got weaker and sicker with headaches and stomach aches, and then the cancer came. Mabel and I became friends over the next few weeks, and I went to see her once or twice a week for three years. Her first words to me were usually an offer of hard candy from a tissue box near her bed. And some days I'd read to her from the Bible, and often when I'd pause, she'd continue reciting the passage from memory, word for word. On other days, I'd take a book of hymns and sing with her, and she'd know all the words to all the old songs. For Mabel, this merely wasn't an exercise in memory. She'd often stop in mid-hymn and make a brief comment about lyrics she considered particularly important to her life. I never heard her speak of loneliness or pain except in the stress she placed on certain lines and certain hymns. One day I asked her, Mabel, what do you think about when you're here alone all this time? And she said, oh, mostly I think about my Jesus. I think about how good he's been to me. He's been awful good to me in my life, you know. I'm one of those that's mostly satisfied. And lots of folks wouldn't care much for what I think. Lots of folks think I'm old-fashioned, but I don't care. I'd rather have Jesus because he's all the world to me. So I read you that story from John Ortberg's book and I submit to you that Mabel was party people because she knew who she belonged to. That's where our joy comes from. I'll tell you about two more. I don't have a lot of memories of my Grandma Lupe before she had her stroke. I have vague memories of going to her house and uh, playing with a little blue semi-truck toy on the floor. So this is about the only memories I have before she had her stroke. But after that, I have vivid memories of going to the nursing home with my dad to visit her just about every day. And I can remember being a little boy who looked up at his dad and held his hand. And whenever we'd go, I wanted to hold his hand because this feeling of helplessness would wash over me. Because there's somebody that I love very, very much, and I can't do anything for her. I couldn't make her better. I really wanted to, and I just couldn't. And that's my memories of my Grandma Lupe. I have quite a few more memories of my grandma on my mom's side. We called her Nan. Toward the end of her life, she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and I have plenty of memories of going to the nursing home and visiting her. I remember that the summers when I was in college, I would go during the day every day and I would take her blood sugar and measure out the appropriate amount of insulin for her because she wasn't able to do that effectively. And so I'd do that for her. And 
that was okay because I was making a difference. I was helping. But towards the end of her life, when she didn't recognize me anymore, that all too familiar feeling of helplessness returned. And so I'm no longer a grown man walking down the hallway. I'm a little boy who wishes I was still short enough to hold my dad's hand. And I just felt helpless. But by this time, I'd grown and I knew something that I didn't know before. Their hope wasn't in their health. Their hope was in Jesus. They didn't just believe in Jesus. They belonged to Jesus. And so they had a hope that was greater than their health. Greater than anything this world had to offer them. Church, that's our story too. That's our story too. We are a party people. Not just because we believe, because we belong. We belong to Jesus. It doesn't matter what our circumstances are. We can hope because we know that Jesus is the Christ who is risen from the dead to redeem his people and we are his people. And because of that, church, we can say, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels or principalities, things present or things to come, nor powers, nor heights or depths, or anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the anthem of the party people of God. That is our hope, and that is our solid rock. We want everyone to know that joy doesn't come from what we have but who we belong to and we belong to Jesus so if you're here today and you haven't given your life to Christ we want to give you that chance it starts in baptism it starts with the removing of the leaven from the bread dying to ourselves to rise in newness of life it starts there and we want to give you the opportunity to find that hope today So if you need to make that decision to be baptized, I think you should do it. I think you should do it today. If you didn't come prepared, I think that's okay too because we've got clothes for you to get baptized in. So if that's the decision you need to make today, I think you should as we stand now and sing together.